Well, let me just talk to you for a few moments tonight. I know our, our service, we've done some extra things, so I won't speak quite as long, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just really moved by something tonight that I feel compelled to share with you, and that is this. Your and my life will not be marked by how much we know of this book, but by how much we do of this book, how much we put into practice. And knowing it is a means to an end. And of course, we feel like Bible knowledge is very important, which is why in all of our environments, whether it's nursery all the way up to the worship service, worship centers, we're concerned that you know what God has to say. But at the same time, if we know what God has to say and we don't put it into practice, our lives will never really be what God intended for them to be. So tonight, I want to take you to a scripture that if you haven't fallen in love with, I hope you fall in love with it tonight. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6, way back in the Old Testament. Um, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that the stories in the Bible are there for two reasons. One scripture says they are there for our warning, and another scripture says they're there for our instruction. And so as a Christ follower throughout my life, since I was eight years old, I've tried to look at the Bible in the Old Testament and say, okay, is there a warning here for me to pay attention to, or is there some lesson here that I need to learn? And tonight is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, and I, I'm just so wired that they, they picked angel armies to sing about tonight because that's what we're going to read about here, okay? This is in 2 Kings chapter 6, the 8th verse. If you're reading with me on you know, an electronic device or with your New Spring Bible, the Bible says the king of Aram. Some of you will have a translation that says the king of Syria. Both are correct. The king of Aram was at war with king of Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such such place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Look at this. I have this highlighted in my text. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded, officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, mighty army. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God. Now, the man of God here is Elisha. Now, the servant's name is not mentioned here, but we know from the book of 2 Kings, the previous chapter, chapter 8, several other chapters, we know this particular servant's name is Gehazi. Uh, so, the servant of the man of God got up, went out early the next morning, and an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. This is a, this is, boy, if you're looking for something to put on your refrigerator, some powerful words. Look at this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You know, I've got that word more. That's the biggest word on my page right here. More. Because see, here's the thing. These are angel armies. We'll read about them in just a second. He didn't just say more in number. They're more. They're more in everything. The power of God is more than this world can amass, more in number, more in quality, more in size. And so Elisha said to his servant, to Gehazi, that don't be worried about this because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now it is interesting that the Syrian army had horses and chariots, and when Gehazi opened his eyes, he saw horses and chariots. The only difference was these were horses and chariots of fire. That's slightly different, isn't it? And as the enemy came toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. Interesting, isn't it? Elisha prayed that God would open Gehazi's eyes. He prayed that God would close these guys' eyes. Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, it's not the road, it's not the city. Follow me and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them, this is to the capital city of Israel, led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Oh, don't kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you've captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now, let me pull away from the story for a moment. When you study the Bible, God sees people in three categories. In, in God's mind, there are only three categories of people. The first category would be what we might call the lost. If you grew up in a traditional church as I did, you're familiar with that term. It just means people that are spiritually unresolved, people who have not experienced God in their lives. They might be uh, considered not Christian or not regenerated. You can use pretty much any term you just want to use there without Jesus. That's the problem. And the Bible tells us that all of us were there at one time. You know, every once in a while, we'll ask people to share their story about how they became a Christian. And we actually have people every once in a while who say, I've always been a Christian. Nobody's always been a Christian. You were born dead, every single one of us. The Word of God says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, once you were dead. So every one of us can say we've been dead. Once you were dead, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world, all of us used to live that way. So every single one of us at one point was lost. We were born lost. That's, our, that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus to come into our world. So the first group of people that God looks at when he looks at the world, he looks at people who are lost. Jesus talked about this. He said there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and many go that way. And there's a narrow road that leads to everlasting life, and comparably few go that way. So no doubt about it. That's the first category, lost people. Now, the second category that God sees are saved people. They're not perfect, but they're really committed to following God. Now, we use terms sometimes to refer to these people. We may use the term spirit-filled. That's a good term because the Bible tells us that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God moves into us. But it's one thing to be indwelled by God's Spirit. That happens to every believer at the moment of salvation. So when you got saved, God's Spirit lives in you. But then Scripture commands us to be filled with the Spirit. So the way God looks at you and me as believers, those of us who are saved, we're like a glass or a cup or a vessel, is what the Bible would call it. And so your vessel's full of something. And so you've, you're 
you, many of us have some of God, but then we have a lot of self in us, you know. So we're not filled with the Spirit because we're filled up with some of God and a lot of us. So this group of people, though, would be people who are filled with God's Spirit. The Bible sometimes talks about these people as living in faith. Let me give you what I believe is the best description of being Spirit-filled and living in faith from a practical standpoint. Because I don't know about you, I've heard so much Twilight Zone stuff preached in church when it came to being Spirit-filled and walking by faith that it sometimes rubs me the wrong way. Practically speaking... Being a spirit-filled Christian is living your life based on the Word of God personally. You know, here's the thing that I listen to. I listen to a lot of Christians, even a lot of Christian leaders. I've discovered that a lot of Christians are good at telling other people what they should do. They will, they will be real clear on what God says as long as they're talking about somebody else. You know, if they're talking about forgiveness, well, God says you need to forgive, but then they have trouble forgiving. You know, God says you need to be self-controlled, but they have trouble being self-controlled. You know, here's the weird thing about these Christians. They always have a compelling reason why they don't obey God. Well, I, you know, she just got me upset. Or, you know, I, you know I, well, if you knew what that person did, you'd understand why I don't forgive. So it, it is one of those things where a person who is spirit-filled is somebody who knows what God has to say. They factor it as truth, and they live by it personally. It's not what they want to teach to others. It is what they allow to be taught to themselves. There is a third group that the Bible talks about, and God spends a lot of time talking about this in the book of 1 Corinthians. This third group of people is very interesting. They are believers. They are what we would call saved are forgiven. They have invited Jesus Christ in their life. The Holy Spirit lives inside of them. But they live conflicted lives. Now, I hope this scripture is up on the IMAG screen. Because what I'm about to read to you is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to work with me on this. Look at the first expression and the last expression of this scripture, okay? Here's the first expression. Dear brothers and sisters, who are we talking to? We talking to people going to hell? No. We're talking to guys and gals who are believers. So that's who we're talking to. Now keep that in mind. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people, spirit-filled people. I had to talk to you as though you belong to this world. Oh my goodness, this gets all over me because today so much preaching is all about how to have a better life in this life, which is practical. But the reason for that is, is exactly what Paul is talking about. We have a whole generation, especially of American Christians. They don't think about heaven. They don't think about meeting God. They don't think about living their lives in realities of things to come. They don't, they don't value things according to eternal perspectives. They live in the here and now. So consequently, if a preacher preaches a sermon about something that's going on in their life right now, well, they're fine with that. If he does a series on heaven, it's sort of like, well, I don't need to think about that right now. Well, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. Aren't you living like people of the world? Now, 
One more time. What did he say at the beginning? Dear brothers and sisters. At the end, he says, but aren't you living like the people of this world? I was talking to our executive pastor, Billy Poor, and I got to tell you, I told him, I said, I don't even want to open Christian Post anymore. That's a Christian website. Man, it's like every time I open it up, another leader has fallen into sin. Another leader has fallen to morally. I mean, it's just killing me. I mean, we live in a world today where not even our Christian leaders can seem to follow Christ. We're living in a world where Christians can't, can't keep marriages together, can't stay true to their marriage vows. Their entertainment is filled with the, the junk of this world. Their language, my goodness, there are Christian men, and not just Christian women, I mean, Christian men, but Christian women who drop the F-bomb to their kids. What in the world is going on with us? Well, we're not living like spiritual people. We are brothers and sisters, but like Paul said, we're living like people of the world. And I preach this to you tonight because I can't answer for what's going on outside our walls, but inside these walls, I'm responsible. You do know that when I stand before God, I'll have to give two accounts. Two accounts. I'll have to give an account for me, and I'm going to have to give an account for you because I'm your spiritual shepherd. And tonight, by the grace of God... I just want us to do some self-diagnostics because every single one of us is in one of these three categories. Either we have not yet begun a relationship with God or we're walking by God's spirit, we're living by God's word, we're not perfect, we have our good days and our bad days, but as much as, as, much as we can, we, we believe God's word, we're trying to live by it. Or on the third category, I just think this is where most American Christians are today. I wouldn't say most New Springers, but most American Christians we're what the Bible would call carnal. It's like saved, but living like we belong to this world. So tonight, I want to go back to our story because what's really cool about the story I read to you at the beginning is you have all three groups of people. And I want to just kind of show them to you. We'll unpack it for about 15 minutes, and then we'll be finished here. But the first group, of course, is you see the lost. And that's the king of Syria. That's the king of Aram and his people. He recognized power. I mean, here's the thing. He wants to attack Israel. He wants to overcome them. He wants to beat them. And so consequently, and by the way, I should tell you, he has the most powerful army in the world at this moment. And so he has laid out battle strategies for defeating the Israelites. And so for all of you who you know, have military background, you know that the key is to hit them where they ain't. And so his, his goal is to attack Israel where they're vulnerable. Now, Israel at this moment, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but Israel is not living for God. They're... they're the whole nation pretty much is either in the first category of being lost or the third category of being God followers, but not following God. Interesting. And again, I've taught you this before, and I'll try to give, this, give you this real quickly. If you start reading about the kings in the Bible, and there are four books of kings. By the way, we're doing a series called Kings and Queens starting this June. It's going to be great. But what's interesting about the stories of the kings, four books, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st St. Kings, 1st St. Chronicles is that it appears oftentimes that there are two kings on the throne at the same time in Israel. Now, what happened was the kingdom split after Solomon. Ten of the tribes formed what's called the northern kingdom or Israel, and two of the tribes formed the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. So 
throughout all the stories of the kings, you have a king on the throne of the northern kingdom and a king on the throne of the southern kingdom. Just, this, just Bible study background. The southern kingdom had some good kings and some bad kings. Uh, good kings, uh, well, of course, you could, you could say Hezekiah was one of the good kings. Uh, Jeroboam, Jehoshaphat, they had some good kings, but they also had some bad kings. Northern kingdom never had a good, never had a good kingdom, never, good, never had a good king, always bad kings. And they were always in idolatry. But what's really amazing is that it was like God gave the northern kingdom the best prophets. And so that's what we see here. The prophet Elisha was warning the king of Israel where the king of Aram was going to attack. So every time the king of Aram showed up, the Israel army was right there to beat him. And so he got upset about it and he went into his military team and he said, which one of you is, which one of you is a traitor? And they said, sir, none of us is a traitor. It's just that preacher down there in Israel. It's like God tells him everything you're thinking. Now at that moment, work with me for a second. This guy is lost, but he comes face to face with the power of God. He's, he should be aware of the fact that there is a power that is way beyond his power. I'll tell you what I've come to believe about people who are spiritually unresolved. I believe they recognize God in their lives. And here's the thing. Every person who is without God has kind of an error, unseen error over their head. It's either pointed toward God or pointed away from God. And I think that those who have an error pointed away from God, they're like the king of Aram. They recognize God's power, but instead of letting that draw them to God, he's like, well, okay, if that preacher down there is giving away our military secrets, let's just kill him. Now, that's not smart. Because if that power is strong enough to defeat you in battle, if you try to kill that man, you are messing with power way beyond one's own scope. And that's what was happening to the king of Aram. The problem with being lost is a spiritual blindness. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Bible says, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. Thank God 93 people came out of that darkness this last weekend, right? Isn't that great? So if you look at the story, the first group you see, you see those who are lost. Second group, or the second person that you see in our story is Elisha. That's your spirit-filled Christian. You know what is interesting to me? That the Bible never says that Elisha actually saw the angel armies in our story. Because Elisha did not need to see them. God said they were there. He took that as truth. He asked God to open Gehazi's eyes so Gehazi could see them. But the Bible never says that Elisha saw those armies. He knew the word of God. In Psalm 34, verse 7, the Bible says, The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him, and he delivers them. Now, guys, please listen to me for a moment. The essence of being a spirit-filled Christian is that you factor in God's word as truth, and you live your life based on God's word. One of my problems with our era today in Christianity is what I call cliche Christianity. Listen, guys, I appreciate great quotes and stuff, but it's amazing to me how the Christians get snagged by cute stuff they see on Facebook. I want to tell you something. When your life falls apart, and it will someday, 
cute stuff you saw on Facebook, chicken soup for the soul and all that kind of stuff, that won't get you through when your life falls apart. You will need the word of God. You will need something to cling to that you will know down in the depths of your spirit. God said this, and I'm living my life based on this, and by the grace of God, this will get me through. Listen, guys, cute stuff on the internet won't get you through a divorce. Cute stuff on the internet will not get you past a nervous breakdown. Cute stuff on the internet will not, will not help you when your career dries up and blows away. Only having God's word where you can say, this is what God says, it is true. Hey, listen, you know, someone said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, 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 there's one too many statements in that. God said it, that settles it. It's true whether I believe it or not. I love Elisha. This, I don't even know if this series is still available anymore. I preached a series back in 2005 called G2, Generation 2, on Elisha. Oh, I love that series. Elisha's an interesting guy. He, he, he's not real flamboyant like his predecessor, Elijah, but he has great power in his life. He's just very quiet-spirited, and he lives out God's grace. If you can get a hold of Generation 2, it's a, it's a good series. You may want to get that. Here's what I noticed about Elisha. He was a player. When you look at what God was doing in a dark time, Elisha was a player. He was a big part of what God was doing. New Spring, let me just say to you tonight, don't let the craziness of our age fool you. God is doing great things in our world, and he is looking for people to be part of what he is doing. You know, I, I'll, I'll promise you, I, I talk to so many Christians, and even Christian leaders, it's like they watch the news and they're like, oh no, we're just going to hell in a handbasket. You know, America's just going down the tubes. Okay, it may be true, but God is still doing great things in our world. I mean, okay, maybe we're in the last few minutes of the game. Maybe we're in the final two minutes. That's where most games are won or lost. If we're living in the last days, and I believe we are, then let's just take God at his word. God, look at this. This is what the word of God says in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. The eyes of the Lord scan the whole world to find those whose hearts are committed to him and so that he can strengthen them. One translation says the eyes of God run back and forth throughout the world looking for men and women whose hearts are fully committed to him so that he can show his strength through them. God is doing great things in this world. This is another thing tonight. If you are somewhere in between being a Christian who is living as though you belong to the world, but at the same time, there's something within you that wants to be a spirit-filled Christian. If you're looking for incentive tonight, let me just show you this. I believe that spirit-filled Christians will have wisdom from God, supernatural wisdom, to know how to live their lives. They will just recognize the right course versus the wrong course. They will recognize the smart opportunity against not recognizing it. Look at you know, this interesting story. When, when these guys, you know, they're smitten with blindness and Elisha leads them in to, you know, he leads them right into the capital city, leads them right up to his king. And the king, of course, is not, he's not, I don't even think he's a believer himself. The king of Israel is a wicked man. So the king of Israel sees all these soldiers and he's like, shall we kill them? And Elisha's like, no, you don't kill them. You'll just really start a war. He said, don't kill them. Throw a banquet for them, feed them and send them back home. And you saw what happened after that when he sent them back home. That ended the war. Isn't that interesting? The savvy wisdom of a spirit-filled Christian 
I believe God just communicates to that woman, communicates to that man the right thing to do in that situation. Well, that should make you want to be a spirit-filled Christian, if nothing else, right there. Finally, let's look at what the Bible refers to as a carnal Christian. And here you see that in Gehazi. He was a believer, no doubt about it. He was a servant to Elijah, which means he was an assistant. Most likely, he was a young preacher. Elisha and Elijah both ran something called the School of the Prophets. It was kind of like a seminary in those days. And so I think Gehazi was, was one of the young preachers. He believed the truth theologically. He just didn't get into his living. In the contest, this is probably the most important thing I'll say tonight. When, in Gehazi's life, in the contest between God's word and his five senses, his five senses always won. Theologically, technically, theoretically, he believed God's word, but when it came down to a question of do I go with what God says or my senses, I'm going to go with my senses. And that was a pattern for him. In fact, if you, if you really just want to study this tonight, go back and read chapter 5, and Gehazi did something really, really stupid. I think he ended well, but here is a guy that throughout his life, he lived mostly depending upon his Five senses. Now you see this in the story because evidently his physical sight worked just fine. I mean, when he woke up that morning and he saw the army there in his subdivision, and he said to Elisha, oh my word, we're under attack. I mean, he saw those guys. His physical sight worked fine. It was just that his spiritual sight didn't work very well. Now I'll tell you why I believe, and coming to a close now, I'll tell you why I believe we have so many Christians in this last category today. Because of our culture, we believe we know more than any generation before us. It's not true. Not useful information. But we have more information than any culture has ever had. We've seen an explosion of knowledge with technology. And I think we're drunk on that sense that we know more than anybody before us. And that drunkenness over this pseudo-knowledge has caused people to discount what this book says. And those of us who believe what God says are looked at as being backward. Work with me. You know the scenario in 2 Kings 6. Gehazi feels very sophisticated. He thinks Elisha doesn't get it because he's having to go stir Elisha up. He's saying to him, boss, you don't get it. There's a big old army out there, and I'm more sophisticated than you are, and I can recognize the dangers. And here I am freaking out, and you're just chilling back here in the back of the house, and you just don't know what I know. There's a big army out here from Syria. They're here with their, with their Humvees, and they're here with their surface dive missiles, and they're out here with the full James catalog of military hardware in our subdivision, and you just don't understand, Mr. Prophet of God. But you and I know from the rest of the story what Elisha saw that he didn't see. And I want to tell you something, guys. You're not backward if you take God's word and believe it and live your life by it. It's just that God sees a whole lot of stuff that you're just not going to see in Google. 
you're not going to be able to Google a lot of stuff that God is doing in the world. I want to close tonight with this scripture. The reason I just felt really compelled to bring this message tonight is this is an, there's an Old Testament story that I've shared with you, and there's a New Testament scripture that I think that when Paul wrote this, he had to be thinking about this Old Testament story. And he's writing to Christians in a church, and he's trying to get Christians from that third category of living like they belong to the world to being spirit-filled. Read with me. He said, I keep asking God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him much better. Look at this. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, can I just read this and we'll come back and take it apart and then we'll be finished. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is saying, I'm praying that your spiritual eyes will be open. Verse 18, that you may know. Now, that's an interesting Greek word. The usual Greek word in the New Testament is gnosko, which means to know, but that's not the word used here. This is great. When the moment I saw this, God began to teach me. The word here means to come clearly into focus. If you are a carnal Christian tonight, you're saved, but you're living like you belong to this world. You sort of see the things of God, but you can't make them out real well. You can't make them out well enough to live by them. They're there, but they're fuzzy. Paul is saying, I am praying that the eyes of your spiritual person may be open. Here's what the word no means, so that it will come into focus. Now, Paul wants three things to come into focus. And if you can begin to see these things by the wisdom of God, they will translate, they will transition your life. Paul said, I'm praying that God will just bring these things into focus for you and see them through spiritual eyes. First thing, Paul said, I want you to be able to have come into focus the hope to which he has called you. Now, hope there doesn't do us any favors, that English word. Let me tell you what it means. It means excited expectation. You know, it's interesting because Jesus said that unless you become like little children, you'll have a hard time entering the kingdom of heaven. You know who really gets this thing about excited expectation? Kids do. You ever see a kid who can't sleep because he's going to Disney World for the first time tomorrow? You ever, see a, you, know, you ever see a kid who can't sleep because Christmas morning is the next morning? Because of this excited anticipation. And so Paul is like saying, listen guys, I'm praying for you because you're living in this world and you see all this stuff, but I'm praying that your eyes and your heart will be open where you can begin to see clearly the excitement that you need to have about all the things that God has promised you. I'm talking to some of you who get so depressed when you watch Fox News. Am I, am I right? 
you're just so depressed. And you walk around depressed. Why? You're a child of God. Hey, we're not going to a, we're not going to a fallen world. We're going to heaven when this is all said and done. We're going to be part of God's kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign and make everything right. I mean, how about getting excited about the fact that we have the promises of God? We don't have to walk around. I mean, so many Christians are just like, oh my, it's just such a terrible life. And oh, and Paul's like, I'm just praying you get your eyes open and, and the, the promises of God will come into focus. Number two, he said, I'm praying that your glorious inheritance, and it's interesting because glorious there refers to the quality of the riches that you have. You know, the Bible, when it talks about riches, it often reminds us that they're not riches that fade away or they're not riches that rust or riches that can be taken away. You know, one of the things that makes rich people unhappy in our world sometimes is that they're terrified they're going to lose their wealth. But the Bible says we have great riches, not only in quantity, but also in quality. And then finally, and this is good, this is for all of you who are struggling tonight, he said, I'm praying that God's power will come into focus for you. And it's interesting because he just jams together words that mean power. Let me, let me give you the best English translation. He's saying, I'm praying that God will bring into focus his hyper, mega, dynamite, miracle power. That's what the Bible says. So if I'm, if I'm living a carnal life tonight... What am I not seeing? I, I'm not living in the eager expectation of everything that God has promised me. On the other hand, I don't understand how rich I am because I'm not only rich in quantity, I'm rich in quality riches that will never go away. And hey, I'm not, I'm not without juice tonight because God is at work in my life and his power is greater than the power of connections. It's greater than the power of money. It's greater than the power of personal charisma. It's greater than having a million followers in social media. It's the power that is hyper, mega, dynamite power. In fact, God says, just so that you'll understand a sampling of this power, this is the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. And the Bible says, it's at work in your life. You are not by yourself tonight. Now listen. Carnal Christians, you know what you're going to hear if you're around them very long? I'm unhappy. I don't have what I wish I had. And I just don't have what it takes to get done in life what I want to get done. And Paul is saying, oh, that God would open your eyes and that you would begin to follow God. And if God says something, that you would factor it in as true, and you would not just teach it, but obey it and really put it to work in your life. And if you would do that, Paul says, God would open your eyes and bring into focus his wonderful power, his incredible riches, and he would bring in these expectations that you have to look forward to so that you'd never be able to be depressed again. Thank you very much. God bless. Thanks for coming tonight.